Welcome to the Decent Crypto Podcast. Today is May 4th, 2022. We are live from New York City with another Decent Deep Dive. I'm here with Matthew Blumberg. Matt, how you doing? I'll tell you, Karan, I'm, I've, been, I've done better. Um, You've done better. I've done better, you know, because the sun's coming out, the weather's getting nice, throwing on all my short sleeve shirts, throwing on my tight-fitting summer apparel. The guns are out. The guns are out, and oh man, have I let myself go this year. I am, I am feeling insecure. Ooh, we are insecure today. We are insecure. Should we talk? Should we talk security? We're going to talk security. We're also going to do better on the jokes. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, All right, man. Today's episode, you, uh, uh, what's it called? You jumped the gun a little bit. Today we're talking about smart contract security. We're going to get into really all of these attacks, these hacks, these vulnerabilities, these exploits that we're seeing lately. Why are they happening why exactly is the chain so insecure? Why is all of this happening? You know, why, uh, why does this exist? Why does because this exist? Ethereum exists. It's because Ethereum exists. Uh, fortunately for us and for the listener, you have been reading this book on smart contract security. Yeah. What is the book called? Is it called Smart Contract Security? It's called Fundamentals of Smart Contract Security. Wow. Okay, not advanced smart contract security, but the fundamentals. <laughs> Just the fundamentals, yeah, not, not um, the technicals. Not the technicals, yeah, yeah. Um, um, no, so this was like a really long, long book. Uh, it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't super long, but it was pretty dense. Yeah, um, yeah. And I got to tell you, it is one of the best reads I've ever experienced. Uh, if, you're, if you're me, this is a book you should have read a long time ago because it's so interesting. I need um, to read out to the listeners exactly this text message that I once received from you <laughs> on Sunday yeah. about this book. It's like reading The Art of War, a game, game theory textbook, and a history of arms race all at once. And I was like, dude, is this guy like, I don't know, what is he doing right what now? What is he doing What exactly right is going on? <laughs> and it turns out it was the fundamentals of smart contract security. So, um, yeah. So look, we haven't, we haven't plugged any product on this podcast so far. Never. But boy, just genuinely, what a great book. Okay. Uh, we should link it in our show notes. We will link it in the show notes. Who's it by? Uh, like five authors. Five authors. Okay, yeah. we'll, we'll link Satoshi all Satoshi Nakamoto, Satoshi Nakamoto, <laughs> <laughs> Vitalik, and Satoshi again. Bro, Satoshi already had an answer to smart contract security. <laughs> Don't, Don't have smart them. contracts. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Satoshi um, was a <clears throat> gigabrain. Yeah. So if we look at like, why does this exist? I I really think that the answer to that question is because of the haphazard way that that Ethereum came to be Mm. and that like Solidity came to be as well. Right. Um, You had like people coding up three different clients just to like parse the 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 blockchain transactions. Right. There was one in Go, one in C++, one in Python. Um, and so the C++ one eventually, you know, evolved into parody, right? Uh, okay. The Go one is Geth, Go mm-hmm. Ethereum. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Python, I think, kind of kind of died out because um, it was just like Vitalik's like research project. Um, I see. So as somebody who's not technical here, what exactly happens when you write 
so, uh, Solidity code or whatever, you know, code in any of these three different languages, right? Does it basically then all get compiled into one specific kind of format that then gets inserted as a either like contract on chain, right? Like how does that uh, process exactly work? Right. So, um, so when you write any kind of code in like one of these human friendly languages, mm -hmm. like a Python or a Solidity, mm -hmm. uh, it gets compiled and then sent to the computer, uh, where it can like parse the, the raw zeros and ones. Right. Okay. Uh, and so, uh, it's the same case for Ethereum, right? Where you write your smart contract in Solidity, mm -hmm. uh, and then it gets compiled down to the to the raw like bytecode. Okay. Uh, and then that gets interpreted by all these different Ethereum clients. So that that's how they can make sense of like what state changes happen during a given transaction. Uh, and and so they do that all in all in the EVM. Um, but really, the thing is, um, th you know, that was just one example of like how haphazard the Ethereum like creation was. Um, and so, you know, that's reflected in Solidity as a language. There were a lot of people working on it. There were a lot of people kind of like it was it, it feels more like an organic language, mm. uh, almost like a human language where like over time it evolved and like we realized that there were some mistakes in the language. Um, and it, it wasn't really designed super thoroughly from the bottom up, right? Uh, mm -hmm. There was like a big rush to like launch the, the blockchain itself after the ICO, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so uh, there were some decisions made that like we wouldn't make them the same today. Uh, and like people will say that, uh, and I used to think that they were just kind of like, attacking ethereum kind of hand wavy but it yeah. turns out that in, in reality there actually are decisions that like okay. we just wouldn't make today that, <clears throat> that were like clearly the wrong way to handle a given problem at a given time i see um so we're gonna get into kind of what those decisions will be we're gonna go through a ton of examples of how these decisions led to certain exploits right but fundamentally because of the fact that this has been a problem kind of since the very beginning like this is uh something that the system was built with really it's also led to attacks basically since the beginning right so <clears throat> should we get into some of the ways that Let's let's handle let's handle a couple of simple ones first, just to get in the groove. Yes, uh, and then we can get into some of the more interesting ones. How does okay. that sound? Yes, that's perfect. Um, cool. So, uh, so uh, do you know anything about what what they call overflow or underflow? Absolutely not. Okay. Oh, actually, hold on. Let me take a guess at this. I did a little bit of coding back in the day. So, overflow underflow is like you need your uh, variables to be like either above a certain number or below a certain number like it, it's got to be either like above zero or like the highest number that it can handle is like nine 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 or something like that and the number that you end up getting as a result of some kind of computation is like outside of that range right so it's either like too big or it's too small or it turned out to be negative or it's like infinity or something like that and so either like you're overflowing or underflowing the values that need to be or like that the constraint that can be represented yeah by exactly the, by the language exactly so um so you think of it like an odometer right so okay. if you're driving a car and the odometer goes over from nine 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 mm -hmm. uh and it doesn't have space for another digit it all just wraps back around to zero 
Um, yeah, happens more to me on the weighing scale, not the <laughs> dollar. But feeling insecure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that that's that's the idea, right? Is um, if you have like a like in Solidity, like the numbers are represented with a fixed number of bytes. Okay. Uh, and or bits right uh and okay. so like commonly you'll use like uh if you have like a value that that's uh always positive right um and it uh and it's yeah you know, like the the most common type is the uint uh 128 right uh these are used all over the place um it's called an unsigned integer which means that like it's just positive right uh and the issue is that one wraps around from 999999999 yeah. uh, or however that's represented, you know, in 128 bits um, yeah. to zero uh, and vice versa. Zero wraps around to the infinite number. Right. I um, see. And so let's say uh, you approve a token. Right. For, um, you know, because you want to do a swap. Right. Uh, on like Uniswap or something. Uh, you set your approval to like a thousand whatever token, right? Uh, and then you go in, you execute your swap. You want to revoke the permission to like for that contract to like take those tokens from you. Uh, if you revoke it by say you know so you approved it for a thousand, if you approve it if you revoke it by a thousand and one, then it will have infinite tokens. Okay, okay, um, I see. And so this is uh, this is like a thing that comes into. Uh, uh, comes into it quite a bit with something like fees where okay. like you might have approved it for some amount right mm. but then if there's a fee on top then like you might need to approve it for like one more than you initially wanted to and that can like cause like a weird wraparound behavior i see um, okay so before we get into like some of the problems this causes or like the effects why can't this just be fixed? Uh, yeah, so natively it's not part of the Solidity language, right? Mm. But in practice, for math operations, everybody uses a library from uh, a company called Open Zeppelin that makes okay. these like standardized Ethereum libraries. Uh -huh. um, and uh, it's called Safe Math. Okay. And like, if you're not using Safe Math, like you, you know, that that's like a huge red flag. Like you should never put any kind of value at risk with a contract that doesn't use safe math that like rolled their own math right okay there's a common saying that like you shouldn't roll your own smart contracts i see so i guess i'm speaking more generally though why can't some of these seemingly simple vulnerabilities or oversights when creating the system just be fixed now right uh, is this a governance thing uh yeah i mean part of it is this like difficulty in getting everyone to rally behind a change yeah uh and then part of it is backward compatibility where like mm. if somebody deployed a contract like the you know the zero x relayer contract has been around for five years now yeah right? uh like they may have used their own set of like math definitions that like they might break if like the standard math like changes now there are different versions of solidity and so you can imagine someday there might be one where the math is just not broken uh mm -hmm. with overflow and underflow um, but, uh, in reality, just because everybody's already using safe math, you don't really need to worry about it. You know? Yeah. Uh, you just have to remember to use safe math. Okay. So there are problems with safe math though. And one of the things that you've mentioned to me before that breaks is running out of gas or just gas in general. So is that an underflow overflow kind of problem? Um, so underflow overflow, like by fixing it, you might have to use more gas to use safe math, for okay. example. 
because SafeMath is going to conduct this check to make sure that like no underflow or overflow is happening as a result. Like imagine you're at this uh, 999999 and you want to add one to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, SafeMath will either error it out or it'll represent it using a, a bigger, you know, unsigned integer with like more bits to it or, or something like that. Okay. Um, but uh, uh, it has to perform that check. It first asks, okay, like, is the maximum number minus 999999 greater than or equal to the amount that you're trying to add to it, okay, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. And like running that if statement, uh, it, it costs gas, right? Yeah. Like it, it consumes computation. Okay. Um, so uh, I guess, you know, if you're really sure you're never going to have overflow or underflow, like you, you don't have to use safe math. Um, and you wanna, I see. We okay. want to like expose like the bare bones to the developers mm. to the degree that, that we can. Uh, but then also, you know, there's a library to like to make it easier to interact with it. Um, okay. So let's make this more concrete now. Let's get into maybe an example of this going awry and leading to either an exploit or some kind of behavior on chain that wasn't anticipated? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, I think, like, uh, prop. well, there, I don't really have a great, like, specific example for this one just okay. because it's, like, so straightforward, right? Yeah, yeah. And people figured out pretty early on that we needed to avoid this since this is a problem with, like, typical computing as well, right? Like, okay, so underflow, overflow problems don't happen that much no, because, because you of the safe mass implementation. Yeah, exactly. And so it's just kind of been solved. Yeah. Okay, um, so this is, I guess, an interesting way to point out <clears throat> how some of the solutions have come about, I would say. Because, like, to me, I saw this and I'm like, dude, just get a better, like, library that you're using for the math or, or like, whatever it is. Like, as a non-technical person, it just seems so simple to have the math this not fixed. Broken. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, we, uh, there's a couple things that I would point out just in the simple example is that, one, the fact that you have gas, like, the fact that there's actual value being transferred in every single transaction uh, makes this a little bit harder right because you can't just say like oh you can't just add a couple add more this, checks yeah add this solution yeah right yeah. um but it also highlights the fact that uh you can't really change things at a core protocol level maybe because of governance because of uh whatever right like it is a decentralized protocol so everybody needs to agree and everybody also needs to be able to run the software like you said it needs to be backwards compatible but points out that the community kinds of rallies around these like what they're called shelling points that just become like the industry standard, right? Like safe math. Uh, so that is like the solution everybody came up with. And this is not really a problem anymore. Um, yeah, that's the idea. But, you know, you'd be stunned. There are still people out there deploying contracts without safe math. And it's like, you know, if you're hiring a Solidity developer, like this is one of the first like things that you would look for is like, you know, if, you, if you're walking through an example contract together, you want to see if they're using safe math or not. You know what So I mean? what, yeah, okay. Like it's a good interview question. I yeah. Mean, not, you know, or it's a good point to have on the rubric for like a, like a whiteboard question. Yes. Um, okay. Let's talk about so, one with like a very concrete, like uh, exploitability. Yes. Like, like we, we did one where like it's kind of solved as long as you follow the best practices. Let's talk yeah. about one where you really have no good solution. Okay. Let's talk about transaction ordering dependence. Okay. 
So transaction ordering dependence has to do with this idea that um, like transactions come through into the Ethereum network, uh, and it's it's not certain what order they're going to get executed in, mm -hmm. right? So in a centralized database, you can control what order things happen, but in a decentralized system, you have like all sorts of factors that might cause this to be a little bit random. Yeah. So so for example, uh, the fact that there are gas fees. Yeah. Right, so somebody might pay a higher gas fee, and their transaction might go through before somebody else's who paid a lower gas fee. Yeah, um, and uh, and like even just beyond that, like the the fact that like two miners might receive two transactions at the same gas fee, but they might be on different sides of the world. Mm. Uh, and so the oh, so like literally so who like it's latency. being relayed to? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay. Um, and so, or you know, one miner mines it, and the other one you know doesn't see your transaction by the time they mine it. Uh, you know, all, all sorts of variables are, are at play here. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you really can't have anything that uh, requires a certain ordering of events, you know, in order to be safe, other than like, you know, you could wait 60 blocks or whatever, and then like things are finalized. Um, like really transaction ordering dependence is, is this like fuzziness around like which events are going to be happening first mm. uh, relative to others. Okay, so I'm just trying to think out, you know, what are some examples of situations where you would need yeah, so, in, uh, in a contract like this kind of order dependence? So let's say like you and I go out and build a DeFi protocol okay. because uh, that's our dream project. Yes, right? of course. Um, so I want to run the DAO now. Yeah. <laughs> let's. Yeah. Uh, wait, you're gonna run the okay? Yeah. Let's say <laughs> let's say you're gonna run the DAO, but after hearing all this smart contract like security nonsense, yeah. you're like, okay, I'm gonna outsource this to someone who knows a little bit more about solidity I than was I do. Say, I'm just gonna rug the DAO. <laughs> but sure. You don't want someone else rugging it first, right? Yeah, you, you want you want these things to be secure enough. True. True, true. Um, yeah, I need to know the bugs so I can rug them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like like Jewel. Oh, no, yes, yeah, of course, of course. So um, shout out Frisky Fox. <laughs> uh, so like. Uh, so you hire me as a contractor and you say, Matt, I want you to build out like these core contracts and here's how they're going to work together. And so I, I do it and I do such a good job uh, that um, you, you initially agreed to pay me two ETH to do it. But uh, you want to tip me a little bit, you, you or let's let's say two USDC. Uh, but you want to tip me a little bit. You mm -hmm. want to you want me to have three USDC. Okay. So here's the order in which you expect things to happen. First, you approve two USDC upon my completion of this code, right? And approving means that I get to withdraw tokens from your account. Yeah, because the way Ethereum works is it's a pull system not a push system the way bitcoin works when you sign a transaction it approves money to basically be sent out of your wallet into somebody else's wallet the way ethereum works is it's a pull system you are approving somebody else to pull funds like a contract to withdraw funds out of your wallet Yes, uh, and this is important for tokens in particular. So, like mm -hmm. ERC20s, this is really like one of their core behaviors is, yeah, this, yeah. is this poll system. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you approve me to pull to USDC because I sent you the contracts and they work. Mm -hmm. But then you're feeling good about it. You're like, this is really good. Uh, and you're like, okay, Matt can have three USDC now. Mm -hmm. um, so, you think the transactions are going to go like this? Mm -hmm. You approve two. Then you approve three, which updates the total amount approved from two to three. Uh, and then I will withdraw three. But 
in between your two approvals, I could submit a transaction to pull two. So you mm. approve two, I can pull two, and then you approve three, and then I can pull three, right? Uh, if I'm like bidding up gas, right? As soon as I, if I'm watching the mempool and I see that you're that you've just that you've just submitted the transaction to approve three, yeah, I can first pull two, oh. and then quickly submit another one to pull three, and now I get five. I see. Yeah. Okay. So. Um, this is kind of like an unsolved problem, right? Uh, where like what you would need to do is you transfer the tokens to a different address or something. Like like every use case is going to look different. Okay. But um, you really can't depend on the order of transactions mm. happening. And has uh, somebody exploited this yet? Uh, I'm sure it happens every day. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Are there like notable examples that you know of, or is this we're, like we're still kind of in simple land? Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, with, I like, see. With like broad things to avoid. Okay. Uh, we'll get into. I think. I think the next one will have like a little bit more uh, specific. Yeah. Let's go into a famous one. Okay? Let's do it. So um, let's talk about reentrancy. Okay, reentrancy. Yeah, and so this is this is actually the mechanic that allowed the DAO hack to happen. Back the, in the famous day. DAO hack the from DAO. 2017, 2016, 2017. I think 2017. Yeah, I think it was early 2017. Early um, 2017. This was one of the biggest hacks. I inter. If you look at ETH. What what percentage of the ETH was stolen? Was I, th it like I think it was like thirty or yeah. something. Uh, and this is what led to the the hard fork to you know create Ethereum Classic. This My is why we have ETC and ETH. Yes. ETC um, for anybody who doesn't know Ethereum Classic is the one that kept the DAO hack transaction where all of those funds were stolen. The idea was that um, you know these contracts are out there. Code is law. This was literally on the on the DAO website. Mm -hmm. Code is law, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and the terms and conditions of the DAO say check the contract because the contract is all it is. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. <clears throat> uh, so the DAO hacker or someone claiming to be them like posted after this happened. They were like, "Hey guys, thanks for the sweet contract. I've decided to take advantage of the feature where by participating you get free ether. Uh, <laughs> much appreciated." Uh, and like that's the idea, right? Is like, yeah. is, this, is this a bug or a feature? Um, who can really say, right? Yeah. Uh, but the, you know, like everything in crypto, it's a social consensus, right? And a lot of people give them the consensus that, like, okay, like you know, early, early into the actual functioning of Ethereum itself, uh, we had this massive attack that stole like a huge amount of the ETH um, in circulation at the time. We should probably just roll that one back. Yeah. Um, and and I I think that that could probably never happen again. Um, it would be tough now. Yeah, it, at that it point, it was really just Vitalik suggesting that they do this and it being implemented within like 12 hours, I think. Yeah. And um, now that does not seem likely. Yeah, it's. Uh, so this re-entrancy thing, how yeah. does the what are the mechanics exactly? So um, so here's the idea. Uh, in order to understand re-entrancy, we need to understand a little bit about account structure on Ethereum. OK. Um, and so like Bitcoin, Look, I was hoping we talked about account structure today. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you woke up in the morning thinking, "Oh man, I hope I mean, <laughs> I hope our listener I want two <laughs> things. I want JPal and I want account structure." <laughs> okay, um, yeah. So, okay, so so every account has like a few things, right? Um there's uh an you know, an address, right? Mm -hmm. Uh there's an ether balance which mm -hmm. which can be zero, right? Mm -hmm. Uh there's something called a nonce which is used to like keep track of like 
you know, how many transactions the account has sent. Okay. Um, that way, like, uh, I think, I believe that's how you can cancel transactions is you actually send out a second one that says cancel the previous nonce. Oh, interesting. Yeah, uh, at like a higher gas rate. Um, yes. That's um, why, you know, on Ethereum, when you press, like you want to, you do a transaction, right? And you think it's not going to go through and you want to cancel it. It costs you more gas to cancel it. Cause you're just another Cause transaction. It's another transaction. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, and so then there's, uh, there's like storage, which you can think of like the disk on your computer, right? Like it just stores bytes, uh, or, mm-hmm. or data. Right. Um, yeah. and then, uh, there's an optional piece here, which is code. So it's, mm. uh, it's the byte code, the compiled code of a contract. And so contracts will have this, but regular accounts won't. Right. So, um, like I, I think they call them externally owned accounts is like it's owned by a person. It's not like just a contract on the network. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, and so, um, so like your Ethereum, uh, address like doesn't have any code associated with it. Uh, but if you deploy a smart contract, that, that code is actually taking up that, that code space in, okay. in its address. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, every smart contract, uh, has uh, a function called the um, uh, I forget I forget what it's called, but it, it's the function that handles when it gets paid ether. It's called the fallback function. Okay. So upon receiving ether, mm-hmm. um, you could either do nothing, mm-hmm. right, uh, which is like the default behavior. Yeah. Or you can actually set up some code in there to execute some logic. I see. So. Um, the reason this was helpful, you know, back in the day was like, I don't think we really had dreams that like such complex logic would really be executed anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Um, and so initially it was really just like ICOs, right? Uh, so an ICO, this is a very convenient function to have where you tran- you send it Ether and then it just has one contract that handles upon being sent Ether, if I still have tokens left, send the tokens at whatever ratio the mm. price the price is. Okay. Otherwise, send the ether back. Yeah, yeah. Um and so uh like it was kind of nice to just be able to have this like inbox function, right? The the fallback function where like upon being paid ether it executes some some stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. As opposed to having to send it wrapped ether or whatever, you know, like today. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and then having to worry about things like approvals and whatever. Like this would just handle like receiving ether doing a thing. Um, the thing is that there's actually a few ways to, um, to send ether in Ethereum. Uh, and so two of them will send it and then provide the fallback function, just enough gas to emit an event, which is like a log, right? This is helpful if you're like a smart contract developer and you want to see how many times someone's calling a certain function. Mm. You don't have to actually look through the full blockchain and like parse it. You can just look at the logs, which is like a lot smaller, uh, and a lot more manageable. I see. Um, and so like by sort of by default, like two out of the three ways to transfer ether are, um, and they're like separate functions, right? They, they will just send enough gas mm-hmm. to emit an event and that's it. Okay. Right? I see. One of them though, will send all the remaining gas that, that the contract has, uh, in case you want to do something else there. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, so here's how the and it'll da- just keep the balance in the contract. Um, the balance of ETH. So, uh, so it'll be like, yeah, imagine like I send a contract some ETH, mm-hmm. right? Um, 
You and, send one ETH, let's say. Yeah, I send one ETH to a contract, right? Yeah. Uh, say expecting it's, to get say it's an ICO of, contract, right? right? You, and you I expect to get back. 100 tokens as yeah. a result, right? Um, I need to give it enough gas to get that done. Okay. Um, and so, uh, like, I might send it, you, you know, with enough gas attached to the transaction to execute all of that stuff, right? Um, yeah. This is a little bit more applicable to, like, a contract call, you know, sending some ETH sure, to, sure. to another contract. Uh, but, uh, you know, if if a contract calls another contract that, that implements this like transfer function logic, then it needs to pass over enough gas to like, to get it done. Um, you know, whatever, whatever like following logic it is, right. You yeah. have some, you have some ICO participation contract and it sends ether to all of these ICO contracts and it needs to send along enough gas to like continue to execute mm-hmm. all of the logic in there. Okay. Um, so the way the DAO hack went down, uh, you can imagine probably like the simplest thing is like imagine like a bank account, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, you go to the bank and you have a hundred dollars in your bank account. Maybe this is represented by a hundred claim tokens, right? To to claim some some dollars out of this thing. Okay. Um, you give them you attach the tokens to the transaction, right? Um, and uh. It has like on the bank has its own ledger of like how much money you have, like an Excel spreadsheet, right? Uh, and it says, okay, check that Kron. Ha- you send them a transaction, or you, you walk in the bank, you say, I would like to take out a hundred dollars for my account, please. And they say, okay, you have a hundred dollars in your account. Let me go grab that for you from the safe or whatever. Um, and then they bring you the cash back, and then you get to do whatever you want after that. Mm. The ball is in your court. So the way that I would think about this is like, as they're going back to get the cash, another bank teller comes up and they're like, Hey, like that other bank teller is getting the cash for you. Uh, in the meantime, do you have anything else you want to do today? Right. But what did the first bank teller not do? They didn't update your account. So mm. they checked, right, to make sure you have enough money in there. Uh, yeah, yeah, they yeah. went to go get the cash and the next guy comes and you're like, hi, uh, I would like a hundred dollars, please. And yeah, they're yeah, like, yeah. oh, well, you have a hundred dollars in your account. So I guess, I guess that's cool. Mm. Um, and so then, you know, they go to get cash and the next one comes and you can keep executing this until literally until the bank runs out of cash. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, so the way this works is through this fallback function. So you call this like withdraw cash function. Uh, it sends you the ether, and then you have in your in your fallback function, which gets called every time you get ether sent to you. Um, you have some instruction like, "Hey, if the bank still has cash, yeah, do it again." Okay. Okay. Jump right back into that withdraw function. Ah. Okay. Um, so basically, what happened? In this case, I'm trying to put this into ETH and DAO terms. People sent their ETH into the DAO uh, smart contract. The DAO was the name of the actual organization. Um, <clears throat> they, they, what, got, they got DAO tokens back. They right? got their DAO tokens. Um, then there was some shenanigans that aren't super important with like child DAOs and split DAOs. Uh, but uh, basically, the attacker went and said, Hi. I would like to withdraw some ether, please. Uh, he, you know, I like the way the way the DAO worked was like you would create like a sub DAO, uh, and if you were the only one there, then like you can be the one that c- curates it or the one that like decides what you know what rules are implementable. Okay. Uh, and so you deploy this contract that like says, okay, yeah, like if someone sends you DAO tokens, like 
or you know if somebody has some balance of ether in the DAO, like they can withdraw it right uh and so similar to like the ledger or the excel spreadsheet like you know uh if you're the attacker right um the the DAO contract would say okay let's check the uh let's check the ledger um and let's see if quran has balance left right yeah um and then it says, oh, yeah, he's got, you know, uh, 100, I think it was 128 ETH worth of balance. Mm-hmm. And it says, okay, he wants to withdraw 128 ETH. We're going to send it to him, right? Mm. Um, the ETH gets over there, and then your contract call, calls it again. It calls withdraw again. And it says, hey, I would like 128 ETH, wow. please. Uh, and it does it again, right? Um, wow. And basically until the vault is empty. Um that's like in, an oversimplification of exactly how the DAO hack happened, but mm-hmm. um, that's kind of the broad idea. Uh, and does this have to happen in like multiple transactions over multiple blocks? So you would do it uh, in one transaction, right? So the reason they call it a re-entrancy attack mm-hmm. is because you enter this function, this withdraw function, mm-hmm. and then it sends you the ether, and then by sending that to you, it kicks off your function that says if there's still ether in that bank call it again, re-enter the withdrawal function. Wow. Right, so, um, so, and it just happens in one transaction. So you would see like 30 withdrawal function function calls in there. Wow, right? so one uh, transaction can handle all these different calls. Yeah, and the reason is because the way they implemented the transfer, they sent enough gas to call it again. They, they wow. just sent along the gas all the way along for the mm. ride, right? Um, and so, uh, so, then at the end, what happens, right? So um, you're doing this check in your contract. You're saying, if there's still money in the bank, hit it again. But if there's no money in the bank, then thank you kindly. Have a nice day. Mm. Uh, you know, send Quran. You know, like the con- the contract has all the ETH now. Right. They might send it to your personal address, right? Yeah. They might send it to Tornado Cash or whatever. Um, like it's gonna um, it's gonna finish the function call there. Then it goes like any recursive function. It goes all the way back up through the stack of called functions. And then each of those in succession says, okay, great. We transferred the ether. Let's set his balance to zero. Yeah. And then the next one says, great. We transferred the ether. Let's set his balance to zero. Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah. We transferred the ether, set his balance to zero. And so part of it is that they didn't subtract the, the amount. They just set it to zero. Um, and if you do it that way, then every one of those function calls is going to succeed. It just, it's just a set to zero, right? Mm. As opposed to like a, you know, debit the account for however much. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, uh, that, that's kind of the idea behind reentrancy attacks. Really, the way that you fight this is you follow like a common design pattern, right? Uh, called checks, effects, interactions. Um, so we'll break this down. So the first thing is checks. Okay. Does Quran have $100 in his bank account? That's yeah. like a check, right? Um, then you have effects, which is set his balance to zero. Mm. Then you have interactions, which is transfer the ether. I see. So it's an ordering yes. problem. That, that's, you don't want to be handing out money before you actually update the balance. Exactly. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So was that standard established within kind of the crypto realm uh, before the DAO hack? Or is this like from somewhere else? Is this just like a general security practice? or No, this is definitely a solidity thing. And, okay. it's, and it's definitely newer, right? Okay. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah. I think had it been around, we probably... Like, dude, uh, I mean, the DAO, really interesting... They had the same smart contract auditors as the Go Ethereum client did. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, so it's not like they didn't 
audited. It's just we didn't know what we were doing back then, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so like, you know, had it been had it been a common practice, like then this never would have happened. Um, but uh, now we know. <laughs> uh, checks affects interactions. Wow, super interesting, dude. Yeah, this um, stuff has really laid the groundwork for. Well, I can't even say for the better security practices that we have now, which is what I was going to get to. <laughs> but this stuff is just happening all the time now, still, which is, I guess, what makes security like a, an everlasting thing, right? Yeah, security is like a mindset yeah. and, and a, you know, a value, mm-hmm. not, a, not a one-time thing. It's, yeah. not, it's not a task, right? Right. Uh, so it seems like on both sides, right, like the protocol developers the app developers like the contract developers all get smarter after seeing these attacks but hackers also get smarter right and they come up with new solutions because people are writing new contracts and more complex contracts that may use different like it's a it's a turing complete language right so you can really write anything yeah. If it's, um, you know, you really and can. It, exactly. Yeah, you can you express can anything. Express anything. And so if people decide to lock their funds in there and there's a, some kind of vulnerability that nobody has really kind of thought of and, or anticipated, then you are exposing yourself, right? Yeah. Um, so. I mean, it's fascinating, right? Because we think about crypto as risky just in terms of like token prices. Mm hmm. Right? But there's operational risk too. Smart contract Uh, risk is a big thing. It really is. Um, You know, the way you described that was really good. It's like, as we get better, the hackers get better too. Mm -hmm. Um, Why don't we, why don't we talk a little bit about like, um, about an example where like there is this kind of back and forth dynamic, right? Yeah. Um, So one, one area that like really leads to a lot or it used to lead to a lot of vulnerabilities. I don't know if it's as much anymore is random number generation. Okay. So Ethereum cannot have any kind of random number generation in the protocol because if it could, then there would never be consensus. So it's fully just against the rules of the protocol to, to even contemplate having actual randomness on chain. Interesting. Yeah, but so, uh, it doesn't stop people from wanting to gamble, right? No, uh, of course. And, and early on, um, gambling on chain was like a popular thing, right? Hmm. Um, lottery systems, uh, Ponzi's. There were there were full on decentralized apps called Ponzi's. Um, Ponzi's, nice. Yeah, like uh, you had the uh, King of the Ethereum Throne Ponzi. You had the FOMO 3D Ponzi. Uh, These and, are like, the names of the actual projects. Yeah, um, they 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 are uh, like. It, it's what? it's really incredible when you look at like the early DApps. Like most of them are are Pons- or many of them are Ponzi's, right? Wow. Um, and it was like, well, what else are we going to do with this technology, right? Uh, and it was kind of a fun thing to do. And at that point, Ether wasn't as valuable, so fuck it, why not, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So. Um, and so, how do these work exactly? Uh, so, like one way that people used to try to achieve randomness, right, is. Um, by taking the block hash, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, like, let's say we have like a coin toss game, right? Um, you flip a coin, uh, and uh, if it lands on heads, you get an ETH, and then, or you get, you know, let's we each bring one ETH into this. Uh, if it lands on heads, you get two out. If it lands on tails, I get two out, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, how is that going to get determined? Uh, we're going to check the block hash. 
uh, and the block hash, like everything in computers, is just a number. Actually, like you know, yeah. it looks like letters, but it's really a number. Right, right. So if the last digit is zero, then you'll get it, and if the last digit is one, then then I get the payout, right? Um, the thing is, like we can. Uh, because it's fully ter- deterministic, you mm-hmm. could actually simulate it, right? Uh, so you could submit a transaction with a smart contract that's like coin toss exploiter contract. And what it's going to do is it's going to check the block hash and it's going to be like, oh, if the block hash right now is even, um, then, or if, you know, if the last block hash was even, then I'm going to, um, uh, I'm going to bet on heads. And if it's odd, I'm going to bet tails. And then enter this coin toss app, like, uh, with whichever side of the bet I want to take. Okay. Um, that's like kind of the idea, right? And yeah, and, yeah. And so one way that people try to fight this is by requiring that the contract is being called by a human as opposed to by a smart contract. Okay. Um, and so uh, that's where the randomness comes in. Uh, well, it's more like if a if a smart contract is executing this thing, then it's inside the EVM environment. Yeah. Uh, in you know, it's getting executed in that same block, right? Mm-hmm. And it's got access to the same block hash information that the coin toss contract has access to mm-hmm. because they're part of the same block. Um, so the uh, like the idea is okay. Like clearly, we can't have contracts participating in this thing because they can just check, right? Uh, that's that's kind of cheating. Yeah, yeah. What if we could instead have, like, we, we could assert that whoever signed the transaction to get it to happen is also the person that's calling the participate in the coin toss function. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so you can do that. You can require that the transaction dot... Uh, originator uh, is the same as the message dot sender is, is what it's called. Okay. Um, and so uh, uh, the reason you don't want to do this typically is because then you ex- exclude any kind of contract from participating in your function. Uh, and so multi-sig wallets, for example, right? Like they're not, they're not built in parts of the Ethereum protocol. You have to use a smart contract to make a multi-sig wallet. Interesting. And if you want any multi-sigs to participate, then you can't actually run this check, right? Mm. Um, but, uh, but you know, people still might do that. Like, look, you're building a coin toss, like gambling scheme, right? Yeah. So uh, what's like a more real world so, kind uh, of... Well, so here's the issue, right? How do you check if something's a, a smart contract or not, right? Um, one, other, one other way you could do it is um, just require that whatever sent the, whatever sent the funds, um, or whatever, sorry, whatever sent the transaction call, has no code. Remember every account has optionally code attached to it. Mm-hmm. And your account doesn't have any, but like a smart contract account would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's how you get around that. When you construct the smart contract, you can call whatever you want. Mm. At initialization time, right, it has no code. And so in the constructor, you could call all of these things to check that the... Um, to check that, like, you know, if the block hash is going to be odd or even, and then, you know, to participate in the coin toss, at which point that thing would see, oh, yeah, this this, this account has no code, mm. so it's totally cool. Let okay. me execute that. Mm. Uh, and, um, like, there's there's some examples of that happening with, like, some of these Ponzi's where, like, they thought they <laughs> were doing, like, the FOMO 3D one is, like, the most interesting one. Yes, right? what happened? So the, the, this is, like, kind of, like, you gotta love the elegance of it is just the barest bones Ponzi you could possibly have, right? Um, so, one, uh, so so basically the the broad idea is you buy a ticket, yeah, and then like 
10 minutes later, mm. uh, you can you can cash it out uh, if you were the last ticket to be purchased. But mm. every time someone buys a ticket, the round gets extended 10 more minutes. Wow, okay. Yeah. Um, and so FOMO 3D at one point had, uh, I'm going to mess up the number, I think it was 17,000 ETH. Oh my god. Yeah. So um, the whole idea of this game is to be the very last person. Exactly. But every time the whole every pile. time you buy a ticket, like you extend it and then wow. somebody else has a chance. You're extending the scene. Yeah, you you oh, are. No. Um, okay. So as This part, is great. As part of the incentive here because it clearly it became like a metaphysical like holy shit is this going to break Ethereum? Yeah. Like is the winner of this going to have all of the yeah, ETH, yeah, yeah. right? That's like, insane. Are the miners going to collude? Like nobody knew what was going to happen here. Right, right. Um, like so uh, as part of the incentive to like participate despite knowing that you probably weren't going to get the jackpot, mm-hmm. um, they would give kind of pseudo random payouts, right? Uh, and so you if you bought a ticket every like end times like you know you would you know maybe every hundred tickets or whatever is a winner right um and that's determined by some random function but it's actually just looking at all of this on-chain information Mm. the block hash right the uh the transaction sender like all of this other stuff and so eventually people were able to figure out how to how to take advantage of that um and only buy the ticket if it was going to be a winner um interesting but that wasn't really the big payout here Right, yeah. the big brain move is what is what actually ended the the first round of FOMO 3D. Okay. Um, so Wait, uh, there's multiple rounds. I I don't know what happened in the later <laughs> rounds, but I mean, um, can you imagine being a part of it? Like, it must be fascinating. Just yeah, like, that would have been nuts. Yeah, uh, like you have this like uh, existential threat <laughs> posed to you by this Ponzi scheme. That's nuts, right? But like the incentives are all that. Like this is classic crypto it's all about incentivization, right? And so the incentives are there for everyone to keep participating, despite the, the fundamental risk that it poses for the protocol. It's like, if you win, it's worth it. So <laughs> Dude, this is what Jerome Powell feels about Luna. <laughs> like all the incentives are there. So yeah, we might as yeah. well let it happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, so, uh, so here's, here's how eventually FOMO 3D played out. Okay. So, uh, like, what most people thought was going to happen was that all the miners were going to collude, right? And um, and they were going to collude, and just, like, one of them would buy the winning ticket and agree off-chain somewhere that, like, they would all share it, right? Um, and so, buy the winning ticket, meaning, like, basically not let anybody... And then after, yeah, after they buy this ticket, they were going to not approve any transactions yes. that interacted with this That's contract. That's why they need to collude. They were going to okay. collectively not do that. Yeah, now, I and see. like, and look, this, this is like active collusion, right? Because in a pre EIP 1559 world, all the fees went to the miners. Yeah. Right. And so if you really want to participate in this thing and you're willing to pay a super high gas fee, um, every miner kind of has the individual incentive to include that transaction in the block and yeah. get and get paid that high gas fee. Right, right. But collectively, if you could collude, yes. you would do it, yeah. right? It's a little bit of a prisoner's dilemma kind of thing, yeah, it right? Yeah, definitely. It's a, definitely a game theoretic question. Yeah. Um, um, and so yeah. I guess before they had a chance to do this, or like how could you trust another miner? I was going to say, how feasible right? do you think that even is? In the back at that point, I don't know. It might have been... When was this? Uh, 2018. Okay. It might have been more feasible. Definitely more feasible. 
it might have been less feasible though right because the you know today like the vast majority of hash power is coming from these pools right and at that point i think it was less pool driven than it is today uh because consumer hardware was better at executing this um but i i don't i genuinely don't know it might have been uh it might have been easier because there was less hash power on the network um you know, and so like if you wanted to control the fifty one percent, like this is a crazy application of fifty one percent, right? Yes. Where like forgetting, you know, forking the network or like censoring transactions, like, this is effectively censoring transactions mm-hmm. would pay you a fuck ton of ETH to do it. Yes. Um, but they did not do that. They did not do that. Instead, one individual, one lone wolf, managed to pull it off. Wow. Check this out. And, like, this is incredible because you can go on chain and, and trace exactly what happened. Uh-huh. Um, so you have this attacker and or quote unquote attacker. They really did play by the rules. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, they uh, they buy a ticket and then they start spamming the network with super high gas fee transactions for nine straight blocks. Oh, my. For nine blocks, they so so Ethereum has something called a gas limit per okay. block, right? Uh, and at that point, it was like eight million uh, guay, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, and so that's the total amount of computation that can happen, right? What they did was they sent transactions that like they didn't even succeed, but they consumed a huge amount of gas on the way. Okay. Uh, and he paid like a relatively high gas price, right? Like you can see, it's really interesting in the box because you'll see people that like accidentally, like a little bit like the board ape mint, uh, like over the weekend where like you had to pay 1.7 ETH to like get anything done on the network. Like, yeah. um, like this is what happened is like they they didn't have their MetaMask configured properly. They just hit approve. And so you see like transactions for someone who was sending like a little bit of like, you know, so like USDT to like their Binance account. And they accidentally paid 45 bucks to get it through, which in 2018 was insane. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Um, right. But other than those people, nobody else got a single transaction through for nine straight blocks. Wow. Almost the entire gas like limit was consumed by this one person. Okay. And what was their intent behind that? To make it so that nobody else could buy a ticket. At all. Ever. At all for the next nine blocks. Oh, so interesting. So they buy a ticket and then they start spamming the transaction Mm. or they start spamming the the memory pool with like super high gas fee, like super computationally intensive transactions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for nine straight blocks, the number of transactions per block decreased from about 100 to less than 10. Wow. Yeah. Because they were doing these like really computationally intensive transactions filling up all the block space with just these like intense ones and nobody else could do anything wow exactly so insane insane i mean the cost to do that today i i'm not actually sure but i think it would it would be so at that point it was about 0.15 eth per block okay at a at a gas price of around 12 uh-huh. <laughs> 12. Think Unreal. about that. Double Unreal. digits. Yeah. yeah. Today it would be at least 10 times as much, right? Yeah. Um, on, a, on a good day. Yeah. Uh, which would be 1.5 ETH per block. Yeah. Right? So times nine blocks is uh, 13.5? Wait, what? Is that right? 13.5. Nine, nine times 1.5. Yeah. Five, 13. Times 5. 5. Yeah, yeah. Or times 1.5. Yeah. 13.5 yeah. ETH to times get this done. I mean, it was totally worth it because they got. I don't know why these numbers don't check out, but I think they got around 10,000 ETH out of it. 
That and so at the time, it only cost them like one and a half ETH to do it. Yeah. Um, just insane. Uh, and whoever this was really understood how the like go Ethereum, like mining, how, how the mining software worked uh-huh. right? uh, and how people were prioritizing transactions. Right. So did the miners not realize this? Like nobody else realized this? I guess the miners just probably weren't aware, right? I mean, yeah, look, at that point in time, it was so profitable to be a miner. Uh-huh. You didn't really want to fuck up your software yeah, to like, okay. to make, the, you know, um, but also it was in their, it was in their best interest to make the blocks that way. Right. Like this person was effectively bribing them to, yeah. to do this, uh, the same way like Flashbots works today. Mm. Um, and, uh, and that was the game theoretically like optimal thing for them, mm-hmm. um, was to like, well, this guy's going to pay us 0.15 ETH to get this done. That's more than I would make otherwise. So like, yeah, let's do it. Um, unbelievable. Yeah, pretty insane. That's impressive. The winner of FOMO 3D. Yes, FOMO of the week. FOMO of the week. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we talked for about an hour now about different kinds of examples, kind of how these smart contracts can be exploited. How do you see the future of just broadly this topic on Ethereum specifically? We're not even getting into other chains, but like, how do you see... The future playing out is it going to be we just have exploits happening in the future per like just forever because that's how the software works like a fundamental part of this is that we have a new protocol that has a transfer of value attached to it like as a f- fundamental part of the protocol like that's what it does right so <clears throat> the direct kind of uh effect of a hacker is that you capture that value immediately, right? Like we were talking before we recorded, if you're a hacker in some other space, right? Like I had a cousin who worked at Newegg, right? So they would get hacked, their site would go down all the time, they would get DDoSed, and the people would actually hit up the management team and be like, we want Bitcoin, which is so funny, right? But on Ethereum, if you hack a protocol, you can just take the ETH. You don't need to ask anybody, hey, send me the Bitcoin or like we're going to keep your <laughs> website down, right? You just take the ETH, right? Um, like you just drain the wallet or like you do, you do whatever. Like you yeah. send it from the contract to your wallet, right? So is this just something that's going to be, you know, the hackers get better, the developers get better, and so on and so forth? Or is this going to be like, you know, we get some best practices in place for certain things and eventually like these things don't happen too much. Yeah, I think um, I think it's uh, closer to the latter uh, where like we get best practices in place. So there are already like really high quality static tools that like if I tried to build the DAO today using Mm -hmm. their code, they would catch, hey, man, you need to follow checks, effects, interactions pattern. Uh, like you're not doing that. You're you're not updating the balance prior to sending the the ETH to like, okay. this other contract, right? Right. Um, so, so for the simple ones, it's kind of been templatized or kind of been. Uh, yeah. Well, know. and then you have like Open Zeppelin, right? Which is like a, a really valuable resource in in like Ethereum in general. Uh, and they have standardized contracts for things like ERC twenties, right? For things like ERC seven twenty ones. You know, I don't think they go as far as like swaps but like you have the uniswap code base which is like you know been really put to the test um battle tested right um and so a lot of these things you can follow templatized like examples right um but uh 
Where I think the uh, most of the risk lays today is actually in the, um, I guess, the connection between the chain and the outside world, um, the Oracle problem. Yeah. So, uh, so this, you know, is exactly what Chainlink is is trying to solve, mm-hmm. right? But um, there are always issues. We saw this with like one of the like finance hacks the other day. Uh, with with like the lending platform where like their native token like someone was able to flash loan a gazillion dollars and then like buy up the native token until the um until the on-chain or the off-chain oracle like reported like a super high price for it um and then they controlled the governance for or you know um or they they were able to deposit it as their collateral and then yeah. take out all of the ETH and USDC and pay back the flash loan. Yeah, listen to our other podcast yeah. from last week. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, but so this is what I was thinking as same well. Same thing with bridges, right? Like exactly. Are, yeah. I was about to say bridges. It's like basically people are now taking the same fundamentals and there's still smart contract exploits, right? But they're in different like little pockets or different layers of the system, right? So it'll be maybe in a bridge or it'll be something where like you <laughs> steal a board ape yacht club uh, seed phrase, you know? <laughs> like, but the attack vectors are still in, still there, right? They still exist, but they are in different places now and maybe not quite on like the uh like simple smart contracts you know things like that so yeah yeah i mean i i think you know, look you, you do still have a, a lot of solidity developers who don't know what they're doing yeah deploying contracts right yeah. like it doesn't cost that much to deploy a contract to like hype it up on twitter mm-hmm. uh and all of that um but uh you know the the attacks are getting more sophisticated right. um and uh you know like obviously that's interesting to see um just from a like from a general perspective of like someone who's interested in this like i you know uh every every week i come in and i'm like i want to talk about the, this DeFi hack and you're like bro that was eight million dollars yeah <laughs> yeah that yeah. Much. Um, yeah no i mean i think like it's for me the more interesting stuff is like thinking about this stuff broadly rather than each individual one right because because then it's like okay well they a lot of that stuff is even over my head but when you think when you look at it more broadly it's like if this is the system that we're building and long term the security vulnerabilities are there like how much can you really trust the system right and is it to the point of you know you have to read each smart contract yourself which you know some could argue that you should be doing but for certain things, you know, we just we really just end up trusting them, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we we end up trusting. I don't, I don't know what you would call this in like a sociological way, but like yeah. we we trust because so many others before us have trusted yeah. with with more value at stake. For sure. Um, but uh, you know, it's really interesting, right? Because. Ethereum, and this is kind of what Ethereum Classic maximalists, if they, if they exist, would argue, uh, like it works. It works according to the spec, right? Uh, similar to Bitcoin, right? Like it, it does what it, it was intended to do. Um, and you're locked in there, right? Like you're locked in. If your smart contract is written with like a vulnerability, you're locked in. But also, you know, and the the huge value add of these permissionless systems is that it works, right? Like no one can stop it, um, and so this is a this is a balance, right? Um, and I think you know there's a spectrum of consumer here, right? Where like some people need a bank, 
Yeah. Like, uh, some people should have a bank, right? Um, whether that's a crypto bank like a Coinbase or an FTX or whatever. Yeah. Like for some people, it's much better to outsource that uh, that smart contract vulnerability risk or whatever to to a centralized organization that has insurance and capital and all of that. Yeah. Um, and for some people, they're going to be reading through, you know, and I think this is really where like the more sophisticated players have an advantage mm-hmm. is like if you're uh, if you're a paradigm, for example, and you have a fund like you bet you're reading every smart contract that that, that is being written, like you're probably even contributing to the writing of them. For sure. Um, but, uh, you know, it's it's a spectrum, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, fascinating. Very fascinating stuff. I expect... We will see a lot more of these exploits. I don't expect uh, you know this to go anywhere. I think we'll see some fascinating ones. I think we'll see some big ones too, just because of how much money is in the system. We've seen the biggest one so far be six hundred ish million dollars, which was the Ronin hack. Before that, also it was like three hundred million. Before that, it was three hundred million. Just hack. a few weeks yeah. before then, wormhole also bridge hack. So. You know, we're kind of seeing the new evolution of this. People are now going out to the bridges. Uh, I mean, the common thread really is on-chain versus off-chain information and uh-huh. taking advantage of, of that contact point, right? Uh, whether that's a bridge or a, or an oracle or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you don't see a lot of like, I mean, the Beanstalk Finance one was, was pure smart contract risk, but like you're seeing a lot more uh, like on-chain off-chain risk uh and if i were gonna bet i would say that is like the major avenue that that hacks will continue to get bigger and and it's just because people are are treating uh all sorts of systems as fungible yeah um and so a lot of people have this thesis around the cross-chain world where or the multi-chain world where like as a user i want to buy an nft i don't care what chain my capital's on i don't yeah. care what chain the nft is issued to me or if it's a layer two or whatever that's all going to be abstracted away from me and I'm just going to click approve in my wallet and it will broadcast to whichever networks it needs to be broadcast to. Um, And I really think that that opens up like a massive uh, attack surface. Massive. Where like as soon as you have uh, like people that are depending on cross-chain fungibility of assets, you have a lot of people that are incentivized to provide the pools of fungible assets, right? Or semi-fungible. So like a wormhole, like kind of thing, right? Like where people have tokens locked on either side. You have to um, worry about everyone everywhere at all times. Yeah. It's, it's not a world that we can live in. Yeah. It's, it's as, it's as strong as its weakest link, right? Yeah, um, exactly. So, I mean, uh, to me, I think this is just like a massive short thesis on this multi-chain world. Um, and I think, uh, I think that fractionalizing things makes them safer. Like this mm. is a huge frustration for me currently building out like tech stuff, right? Like if you're building out in the cloud, you want to build out microservices and you want them to each only have permissions to the bare minimum number of things that they're supposed to. And you don't want to have one big monolithic code base where everything is reading from and writing to or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, but, but from a security perspective, you don't have another option. You really do need to fractionalize. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. I love that we ended on a bullish or bearish segment, <laughs> even though it was unplanned. Bearish, the multi-chain thesis. Thank you, everybody, for listening. This has been our smart contract security deep dive. We'll be back maybe tomorrow with our yes. decent <laughs> recap, Cinco de Mayo special. 
until then, stay decent. financial advice, legal advice, investment advice, or any other kind of advice. Uh, If you're looking for advice, you are definitely in the wrong place. Uh, Until next time, stay decent.